Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill, who is no doubt enjoying a lovely midday meal in Rome, where he is a fellow of the American Academy of Rome. Here in our nation's capital, it's about 8.30 in the morning on Thursday, April 6th. Giant news this week. Donald Trump was arraigned on 34 counts of falsifying business records. After being admonished by the judge to tone down his rhetoric, he attacked the judge and his wife and daughter and the prosecutor, Alvin Bragg. Is a gag order next? Can the case even survive to trial? Former Vice President Mike Pence will testify before a D.C. grand jury about his interactions with Trump between the election and January 6th. Is Trump's chief, though unannounced, 2024 rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, already toast? And Democrats have a good night in Wisconsin. Is abortion the issue that's going to decide the next election? To make sense of it all, our three top Washington reporters. First, my colleague at NBC News, political reporter Alex Seitzwald. Hey, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Nikki Schwab, senior political reporter for the DailyMail.com. Good morning, Ginger. Senior politics reporter at HuffPost. Hey, Ginger. Good morning. Let's jump right in. Donald Trump, Igor break down for us. I mean, this was a historic moment. A, a former president pleading not guilty in criminal court. What yeah. should we be taking away from this? Absolutely unprecedented. First time in history we've seen something like this. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it deserved all the drama it, it received uh, this week. Um, you know, him coming into that courtroom, uh, obviously, if you've seen the images, he did not look happy. Uh, the dour stone face uh look coming into that courtroom really says it all and, you know, not flanked by any aides or, you know, his supporters, uh, just him surrounded by law enforcement walking into this, uh, this room to be arraigned, uh, obviously pleading not guilty and, um, returning home to this, uh, this massive, uh, this massive rally at Mar-a-Lago where he delivered this sort of, um, you know, classic Donald Trump airing of the grievances speech. Uh, it was a little low energy, um, uh, but, you know, playing the hits and lying about the election again and, um, you know, attacking this judge. And obviously the judge since then has, uh, in, the, in recent days, has received threats now. And that's leading, question, leading to questions about what, what kind of response we're going to see from this court and this judge and, and um, whether Donald Trump will tamp down his rhetoric or not. Let's listen to what Donald Trump had to say um, at Mar-a-Lago when he was giving this speech. It looked like a campaign speech, but it didn't quite sound like one. 
The criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury information for which he should be prosecuted or at a minimum he should resign. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris. Nikki, um, low energy, but uh, doesn't matter if you're low energy for a judge. Is he risking more trouble than he's already in because of what he's saying about Bragg and the judge and his family? So I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say, uh, you know, if if a gag order is definitely like down the road, but it seems like he uh, definitely upped the possibility of that just because, you know, he was told to like tone it down and he immediately went to Mar-a-Lago and like basically like yelled at everyone who is looking into him. I mean, not only did he attack, you know, this judge, but I mean, he called uh, the special counsel a lunatic. He basically called every black prosecutor looking into him, both in Georgia and the, the, um, the Southern district of New York racist. I mean, it was, it was quite the rant. So you would imagine that, you know, there would be potentially more legal trouble from Donald Trump ahead. That being said, it's Donald Trump. And, you know, it's kind of insane to think about the fact that it wasn't until this week that there was finally a, a criminal indictment uh, against him and an arraignment uh, just because there's been all this sort of legal trouble bubbling up, you know, for years at this point. And where do you draw the line? I mean, um, you know, I come into this with a bit of bias. The judge's daughter is a friend. Um, I don't want anyone threatening her. Um, but at the same time, um, how do you draw the line between what is a candidate who's going to go out and defend himself and um, what could be, you know, real trouble? Is it can you even draw that line when he's going to go start giving stump speeches, presumably soon? And I think, you know, that was why you know, in the lead up to this arraignment, there was a question of, you know, how could there even be a gag order? Because, you know, he does have, I would say, you know, you know, certain, a certain shield when it comes to being a candidate, right? I mean, he's, he's out there, I'm running for president and I need to defend myself. And I'm going to obviously need to talk about this case because how else am I going to continue my presidential bid without having, you know, voicing some sort of defense for myself? Uh, and this is, you know, as Igor was saying, this is unprecedented. We have not ever seen a former president uh, get indicted, but also a current presidential candidate who was a former president uh, be indicted and then now charged. All of this, um, as you said, kind of been legal problems swirling around Trump for a long time. And Alex, now we see an actual indictment, an actual arraignment, and even some folks who've wanted Trump prosecuted think this is maybe not the case that's going to survive to do so. Yeah, the uh, the reviews are are, are not great uh, from some who you would expect to give positive reviews. Uh, I've been really struck by the analysis from some left leaning and anti Trump legal scholars. Some of which is is very positive, and people say it's strong, um, but. You know, a surprising number of people uh, on the left have said that this is a really weak case resting on an untested legal theory. Uh, we'll have to make a couple of sort of bank shots in order to succeed, likely to get tied up in litigation, kicked up to federal court, possibly all the way to the Supreme Court. So even if it sticks, 
uh, eventually through the appeals process, it might be years. I mean, you know, this well past the 2024 uh, election. It's an article in The Nation today by their justice correspondent, uh, Ellie Mistel, who's uh, been around for a long time, well, well respected. And I think he kind of boils it down uh, succinctly to say, I want to get him. And these charges don't feel likely to accomplish that. So these are people who want to see Trump arrested. They want to see him held accountable, and they are not convinced that this indictment uh, has the goods. Uh, there's, of course, all those other cases floating out there, the one in Georgia, the special counsel uh, investigation, and then two civil cases, the New York Attorney General one and um, the one involving uh, Jenny Carroll that are you know not related to this. And I think the kind of um, view from these critics on the left is that those other cases, the, the Georgia and the special counsel one, those get to the heart of Trump and his issue, his uh, attacks on democracy, the, his involvement in the January 6th insurrection, trying to overturn the 2020 election. This is not only kind of small ball, but it rests on a really uh, shaky foundation. And they worry that um, if he if the case is tossed on a technicality or he, he's acquitted, that he'll claim you know total vindication, the public will kind of tune out and he'll be emboldened uh, while these more serious cases might get overshadowed. Igor, when we saw Trump in Florida on uh, Tuesday night, and then we saw his online post, um, he seems to be concerned about this federal case calling for the defunding of the FBI and the DOJ. Um, is that a thing on the Hill that that could become a, a real fight? That could his um, allies in Congress try to pick up defunding the FBI and the DOJ? Uh, you know, obviously not. I, the Republicans are not going to go along with that. But are they going to push back on this as publicly as they could? We're not seeing that either, um, which is kind of a classic uh, Republican response to anything crazy that Donald Trump says. So it's a classic case of, you know, Donald Trump demanding more cowbell from Republicans and them uh, kind of yada yadaing past it. So you've seen a couple of Republicans speak up uh, against the idea of defunding the FBI, which would be, uh, you know, in addition to the wrong policy move, uh, the worst political move that they could do, allowing Democrats to wallop Republicans in, in the in the elections over, you know, uh, crime and, and security and, and those kinds of issues. So I, this is not happening. And it just kind of shows you that how far are, are, is Donald Trump willing to willing to take this party and how far they're willing to bend over backwards for him. Well, the one person who's not going to be able to avoid answering questions um, is Mike Pence, the former vice president, Nikki. Um, he has said he will not appeal um, the decision that he must testify in the special counsel's grand jury. Um, what does this mean for that investigation? And what does it mean for Pence, who's putting together, it looks like a 2024 run? Yeah, so I actually was with Pence in Iowa last week. It actually was on an airplane leaving Pence when the indictment dropped. So that was a great place to be as a journalist. Um, but he was still, you know, at that point, not quite sure if they were going to appeal or not on this whole January 6th matter. But he, you know, it, it just seems like he doesn't quite have a lane to run in. And he's doing something sort of similar to Ron DeSantis, where he's sort of trying to play both sides. Like now that he's decided that he is going to testify in the January 6th investigation, obviously people on the on the left are, are more prone to, you know, 
cheer him for for doing his you know duty as the former vice president. But I don't think that necessarily like brings him a lot of votes on the Republican side. Um, and then it was interesting when I was asking him about the Stormy Daniels case. You know, he was very much in the camp of a lot of these Republicans saying, hey, like, we think that this is politically motivated. You know, we're concerned about this instead of, you know, I mean, Mike Pence, as a you know devout Christian, could very easily have hammered Trump over the head for the underlying conduct, which is obviously, you know, telling his lawyer to give one hundred thirty thousand dollars to a porn star ahead of the election to cover up an affair. And, and Pence was not really, you know, touching that. He was more so saying, like a lot of Republicans, hey, like, we don't like that there's a, you know, a Democrat in New York going after a former Republican president and now presidential candidate. So, you know, Pence is, is you know, again, like DeSantis, I think, trying to play both sides politically. And, and I think that's why he's polling at like 6%. We'll come back to DeSantis um, but I also wanted to talk to Alex. We we talked about the FBI being defunded. You have a story up this morning about the ATF being defunded. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, or even uh, abolished altogether. Uh, so in this climate, when Trump and some of his allies are going after uh, federal law enforcement. You know, I, I agree with Igor that I think it's unlikely that anything will actually happen. Um, but rhetorically, they're going after these agencies that they feel are biased against conservatives, uh, and they're looking for places to cut spending amid you know government spending uh, negotiations that are ongoing. Uh, and the ATF is on the chopping block. It's always been a, a whipping boy, as one gun lobbyist put it to me, for uh, the gun rights movement. You know, going back to its inception. Um, and they feel it targets lawful gun abiding citizens. Uh, it's a, you know, woke out of control bureaucracy as the chairman of a subcommittee that held a hearing on this, uh, last month, put it, uh, and the white house is opening a new line of attack on this. They're, they're trying to kind of flip the script on Republicans soft on crime attacks by saying, Hey, look, it's, it's the Republicans now who want to defund, uh, federal law enforcement agencies, and specifically on the ATF, uh, they, in this story, gave me you know, a new statement opening this new line of attack, arguing pretty incendiary claim that uh, by going after the ATF, Republicans are helping Mexican drug cartels traffic fentanyl into the country because the ATF is the main agency responsible for stopping U.S. guns that are smuggled into Mexico. Uh, and so by going after this agency, they're they're helping arm the cartels essentially, you know it's a it's a strong charge, uh, but I think it speaks to the political opportunity that Republicans have created here by rhetorically targeting federal law enforcement agencies, even if they're even if it's unlikely that they're going to follow through with uh, actually defunding them. Igor, what are Democrats doing through all of this? I mean, the chief rival for the 2024 campaign is arraigned this week. Are they making any political hay out of this? Uh, I think they're doing quite the opposite. They're, they're happy to just sit back and let this whole thing play out, uh, this drama in the courtroom and outside it, and let Donald Trump take the, take the hits and uh, let him twist in the wind. You've seen very little Democratic reaction. There's been a couple of House members who have spoken out, uh, putting out these sort of like vague statements about nobody is above the law. But as, as far as the facts, they're, they're, they're staying, they're hovering above that. You know, you saw Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer 
also call for peaceful protests. But, you know, as far as a kind of a haha, we told you so, you're, you're not quite getting that from them. And as Alex said, many Democrats had reservations go before this indictment was announced, before it was unsealed, uh, about the legal theory behind this case. And if you're going to do this, if you're going to charge a former president, that it's got to be a, a solid case. And I think judging by the, the muted response right now, you're, you're seeing that they're trying to be a little bit more careful and have some questions about where this is going to go. Do you think that would be a different um, response than what we could see should Jack Smith indict or Georgia indict? Would we expect to see Democrats maybe more verbose in one of those situations? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you would have different uh, reaction on the Republican side as well. You know, when you have somebody like Mitt Romney, who's no friend of Trump, uh, the only Republican who voted twice to convict him in both his impeachment trials, questioning this uh, this case and uh, how we got from misdemeanor to felony, uh, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a tell uh, about you know the future cases and, and where where that where that side of the the um, prosecution against Trump is going to go. Alex, uh, I sent you out to look for gleeful liberals on Tuesday. Did you find any? <laughs> I did. I found I found plenty of, of gleeful, uh, you know, kind of resistance type liberals. Uh, and I think among the grassroots, you know, you, you can certainly find um, lots of, of people who are very excited. Uh, I talked to some people who worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign and, and they in particular feel a, a sense of schadenfreude and some gloating after they were subjected to lock her up chance uh, a few years ago. Um, and I think they're less concerned with the particulars of this case and more just the, you know, theatrics of it and the idea that this guy who they are sure in their hearts is guilty of myriad crimes uh, is facing some kind of, of uh, justice. So, you know, I, even if the, I don't think that they particularly cared that much about this particular case and its uh, potential weaknesses, it's more the idea that uh, this is the breaking of a dam or the first domino to fall or, or, or the, the, the shattering of a precedent that um, now shows that a former president can be charged with a crime. Nikki, if if Democrats aren't trying to to make some political gain out of this, are any of Trump's primary opponents? No, I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't seem like it, does it? Um, and, and you're actually sort of hearing about a more emboldened Trump campaign. I, I saw a story in the last 24 hours about how um, the, the Trump people basically approached a bunch of like DeSantis's donors uh, to be like, hey, I mean, look at the polls, like Trump's going to be the guy. So why don't you just start giving us money and like, let's get this whole primary process wrapped up. Um, and again, I think that there is a fear. I mean, DeSantis at one point did make that comment about, you know, Stormy Daniels and 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 got kind of, you know, pooped on about about doing it. You know, a lot of people saying that this was the wrong time to make his sort of first strike against Trump. So I think, you know, we have not yet seen any Republican who's been able to ever politically uh, really hurt Trump. And that seems to still be the case. DeSantis is such an interesting piece of this. Igor, when you look at DeSantis, is he done? Is his time up? I mean, Nikki said 
Trump's trying to poach his donors. Um, is his day already over? I don't. I don't think we could say that yet. Uh, I think it's a TBD. Um, obviously, he's extremely popular within the Republican Party nationally. They like what he's doing, uh, uh, restricting uh, transgender rights and all the cancel culture issues, really hardcore issues that Republicans love right now. Um, and obviously, he stumbled a bit out of the gate with his position on Ukraine um, initially. You know, saying that we should not get involved there, then coming out and, and doing a redo on that. And I think right now they're trying to, um, uh, you know, do a fresh start and try to keep his head down a little bit while this whole Trump thing blows over, if it does or not. Um, but, you know, the comparison that people have made is is uh, Scott Walker, uh, you know, the Scott Walker of this election. I'm not I'm, I'm not convinced by that argument. Scott Walker was. Um, you know, he was more of a pro-business uh, Republican, kind of establishment Republican who who uh, made his, his his name fighting labor unions, really kind of a bread and butter issue for, for pro-business Republicans. Whereas DeSantis is much more of a, a bomb thrower who has a lot more appeal within the party. But uh, he's a lot more conservative as well. And, and the comparison to me that I feel is more apt is the Ted Cruz of, uh, you know, of this of this cycle. Uh, he seems to be attracting more conservative Republicans who are who are uh, ideologically similar to, to, to Cruz, like uh, Thomas Massey, this, for example, this week, the Republican uh, House member, very, very conservative. And I would say was never really a Trump guy, um, now has endorsed DeSantis's campaign. Certainly not the Tim Pawlenty of the 2024 <laughs> cycle. No. We saw, though, that Nikki Haley raised $11 million, a sizable amount for someone um, who, while popular, hasn't seemed like she was um, a strong contender. Alex, is this a real primary? Are we going to see an actual contest this year? Uh, it's It's a great question, and I think we don't know. I mean, I would much rather be Donald Trump than any other candidate in the race at this moment. Uh, but, you know, things changed. We predicted that Hillary Clinton would cruise to the nomination in 2016 virtually without lifting a finger. And then she actually had a, a really tough fight with uh, Bernie Sanders and not so much Martin O'Malley. And I, I won't compare Ron DeSantis to the, the Martin O'Malley of this campaign. Uh, but, you know, unexpected things happen. Uh, and I think if you're Nikki Haley or uh, maybe Mike Pence or some of these other people, you want to stay in the race for the eventuality that something changes. I mean, I, I think Nikki Haley is smart enough to know that if the dynamic is what it is right now, uh, she's not going to be the Republican nomination and she's not going to be the next president of the United States. But if, uh, you know, the special counsel indicts, if there's uh, a health issue, if there's uh, who, who knows what else could happen, uh, you want to be there and be ready and be seen as a credible person to, to step in. For it to be a real primary, these other candidates are going to have to start taking shots at the front runner. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's not just politics 101, it's competition 101. You don't win by defending your opponent and turning them into a martyr. You win by beating your opponent. And they're all too afraid to do that at the moment. Uh, but, you know, eventually they're going to have to. And I'm, and I'm very interested to see what Pence says, uh, you know, if he's forced to, to testify here. Because remember, at the gridiron dinner, he was willing to get a little bit sharper on Trump, said he would be held accountable uh, 
for January 6th. So that was, you know, behind closed doors, there was no cameras. So he hasn't, he hasn't said that publicly yet. Uh, but it suggests to me that there's an appetite to, to start to begin. I don't even want to take the gloves off, but like maybe, you know, start unwrapping one finger, his pinky finger to, to start out with. Uh, and I think, you know, being under physical threat, having people chant, they want to hang you. Maybe that, uh, makes you more willing to do that. But so far, until they do that, it won't be a real challenge. It won't be a real primary. Lots more to talk about, including what happened in state and local elections this week while everyone was focused mainly on New York, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Nikki Schwab, Igor Bobic, and Alex Seitzwald. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Labor's Union, supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Alex Seitzwald, my colleague from NBC News, Nikki Schwab from TheDailyMail.com, and Igor Bobic 
from the Huffington Post. Let's jump right in to what else happened this week. We had some local elections in Chicago, in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin one seems to be the big headline. Igor, tell us what happened there. Who was the winner and why does this matter for the entire Democratic Party? Yeah, a huge, huge result in Wisconsin this week. Uh, You had... For the first time, uh, I believe, uh, since 2006, uh, the state Supreme Court shifting from conservative to liberal of uh, four to three um, uh, composition of the court there, Janet Patasowitz uh, defeating Dan Kelly. Uh, and what was really uh, a, a one of the most prominent races this year, uh, at least if you're judging by money standards, it was a very, very expensive race. Um, that will have some some very big consequences for abortion rights. Um, you're likely to see the the state's 19th century 19th century ban on abortion uh, repealed now, uh, as well as some other uh, uh, important events to highlight. As a result, as a result of this election, Democrats were hoping to you know uh, um, repeal some of uh, some of the the election uh, maps that Republicans have put into place now over the years that will. Uh, grease the skids for some of their candidates uh, coming down the line in, in future elections. A really, really, really big result that I w- would argue is probably the, the, the biggest one of this week, uh, aside from the Trump uh, indictment. I want to talk a little bit more about that. But first, we have to talk about the loser in this race, Nikki, um, gave really an unbelievable we wouldn't even call it a concession speech um, on Tuesday night. Can you talk about that? And then Donald Trump sort of blaming him for his own loss. Well, that tracks because, you know, Donald Trump doesn't like any losers, as we know. Um, But yeah, he went on the attack and called uh, alcohol justice Janet a uh, serial serial liar uh, and sort of a, you know, eye popping uh, concession speech. But another thing just to sort of point out about this race is, you know, the night before I, I was watching an interview uh, uh, from, you know, an official in Wisconsin who was on the Democratic side, and they were expecting to potentially maybe win this by a handful of votes. And she ended up, the Democrat, winning by 11 percentage points, uh, which, you know, th- I mean, that's that's huge. It was supposed to be, you know, potentially a nail biter. Uh, so I guess you can maybe imagine why uh, Dan Kelly was was not too happy and not too thrilled when he was, you know, essentially walloped. <laughs> That's right. I mean, if you look at Wisconsin, it's a state that was blue and then was a swing state. And Alex, has abortion just changed the calculation in places like Wisconsin? Yeah, I think it really has. Uh, After the Dobbs decision came down, you know, I was skeptical of uh, making any kind of grand new theories that it's realigned politics. Uh, But I think we're starting to get enough data to say that it really has made a uh, major difference. I mean, you have the, the 2022 elections, lots of variables there. But now uh, this election, where it was really front and center because of an old law that was on the books in Wisconsin that basically outlawed uh, abortion, went back into effect after Roe was overturned. So it was really the front and center issue. It's a judicial race. It's not a um, you know a, a typical kind of electoral race. And these suburban counties, the the Wow counties, as they're called, outside M- Milwaukee, 
where you would expect to see the biggest swing uh, on abortion, major, major swings. And as Nikki said, you know, an 11 point win, much bigger than expected. Uh, so I, I really do think that this issue has changed politics uh, in a way that I don't think we've all fully internalized because if we've been covering it or participating in politics for decades, abortion has always been there. It's always been a part of politics. But I, I think it's now real in a way it never has been. I mean, it was it was rhetorical. It was positioning. Uh, you know, there were state laws that would could do some meaningful but not super uh, existential things. But now uh, in a state, in state elections especially, it really is a question of, of you know, what happens uh, with uh, abortion rights. There were other issues here. There was gerrymandering. There were, there were uh, you know, all kinds of other issues at stake. But I, I think you cannot um, discount this. And I suspect that uh, both parties will be incorporating this into uh, house races and other races this fall, or sorry, n- next fall, and, um, you know, reimagining how they're going to uh, run campaigns. Rona uh, McDaniel, the chair of the Republican Party, had something to say about this. Let's listen to what she had to say. An abortion is still an issue. It was an issue in 2022. The RNC raised the flag. I'm a suburban woman. I know this is an issue. I hear it with my friends, with my young daughter. This is not an issue that's going away for our party in a post-Obs world. And we can't put our head in the sand and think it's going to heading into 2024. Igor, I mean, feels like such a shift for the National Party, who spent years winning elections thanks to, in part, the fervent support of the anti-abortion wing of their party. Is is Rona suggesting that they might come away from that? I don't. I don't think so in practice. But I think, um, you know, in the election itself, they want to tamp down some of some of the rhetoric and perhaps even try to hide what they actually want to do in order to win future elections because they're seeing very rapidly, even just this week, that it is having a real impact and they are losing, as Alex said, they're losing some of these um, suburban districts in states that they're going to need to win um, for the presidency. Um, so they're they're really trying to shift gears now. And you and it's not just people like Ron McDaniel. You had um, Fox News prominent Fox News uh, talking heads like Laura Ingram uh, begging people on, on Twitter uh, to, you know, <laughs> take take the win and, and stop pushing more extreme uh, abortion proposals, you know, saying something like we, we repealed Roe. Now let's let's stop it and uh, try to win back some elections. So it's causing some real consternation right now on the right. Nikki, is this you talk about guns, we've talked about abortion, we've talked about sort of the, uh, Igor mentioned the anti-trans bills that DeSantis has signed in Florida. Are we just in a culture war cycle? Is that what the next year is going to be as Republicans talking about these, these sort of culture war issues? I mean, it, it definitely feels like that's going to be a big chunk of what this uh, presidential race could potentially be about. Um, but, you know, obviously things change. I mean, I don't think that we thought that the, you know, the 2020 election would be basically decided on the president's handling of, you know, a pandemic, a once in a century pandemic. Um, and then also, the, obviously, the economic repercussions that that came from that. But it does feel like 
you know, I mean, elections are, are now being decided on abortion, right? And I, I do think, you know, as mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting happens, uh, and it seems like there's an unwillingness in Congress to sort of push gun control any further, that will sort of rise up as a, a major election issue as well. Um, one one thing sort of going back to Ronald Romney McDaniel, I, I thought it was so interesting that one of her quotes that they didn't play was she was talking about that the Republicans need to, quote, do a better job at messaging. But I just don't know what that messaging would be to help them win elections at this point, because we are seeing I mean, I think that DeSantis you know, open the door to having like a, what, a five week abortion ban. I mean, most women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there's a danger. Uh, I, I know obviously, you know, on the right, people love this idea of, of being anti-woke uh, and, and you know, being pro-life. But I, I think there's a danger of alienating sort of a broader uh, base of supporters. Uh, so I guess we'll see. Alex, I, I, all of this with Republicans, um, seem to think they're not backing down. They seem to think these are winning issues. Look at Tennessee, where they're going to try to expel some lawmakers out of the legislature over a gun rally. What do Democrats see this as? Is this Do they think they can win on these culture war issues? Or does Biden just talk about the economy for the next two years and hope that sinks in? Uh, yes and no. It's it's interesting. I and I after uh, the twenty twenty election, there was this brief moment between uh, you know Biden's win, but the but there were major House losses for Democrats, and Biden's win was much narrower than expected. Uh, and the window was before the Senate election in January uh, when Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock won. And a lot of Democrats that I were talking to were actually pretty despondent, even though they had gotten Trump out of the White House. Uh, it was much worse than expected. And the kind of consensus that I got from a lot of Democrats, which I think is still true to this day, is, uh, you know, we're we're fine on, we do well on the economic issues, but the culture we get totally screwed on. Uh, that's changed a little bit because they feel like Republicans have overreached on these culture issues, but they do not want to run uh, a culture war campaign. They do not want to be running elections on defending trans rights, on defending, um, you know, story time drag hours at libraries. They do not want to be the woke party. They do not want to be the defend the police party. Uh, they want to talk about, you know, economic issues, uh, bread and butter, butter issues. But where they feel more comfortable is in painting the Republicans as extreme. And so the more uh, that Republicans actually with legislation and, you know, actually use actual government power, do things like uh, kick lawmakers out of uh, the Tennessee legislature, pass bills banning books or changing curriculum, they're more comfortable not so much talking about the details of that, but just portraying the party as extreme. And I think uh, both parties will say, you know, the American people think that politics is crazy. They think that the the both extremes are crazy. And so you want to be the, the non-crazy party. You want to be the least crazy party. And uh, I think Democrats are starting to feel more comfortable uh, wading into that and feeling like they can make a better case that they are the non-crazy party, which I think was maybe not as true a couple of years ago. The election of the non-crazy party 
looking forward to it. <laughs> Great conversation today. I am Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Nikki Schwab, Alex Seitzwald, and Igor Bobic. Now it's time for your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Alex, why don't you go first? Uh, well, this is the Australia Man uh, edition uh, of uh, my favorite story of the week, and it actually just came out this morning, uh, which is that a man in Australia was arrested for apparently capturing a platypus <laughs> and then taking it on the metro and uh, just around town and showing it off. And they take this very seriously in Australia. Uh, there was a, a I don't know about a nationwide, but at least a citywide manhunt for him. They pulled security camera uh, footage to track him down. I have a long love and fascination with platypuses. They're very strange uh, creatures. And um, I hope this one is okay. Uh, but, you know, it's nice to see some some uh, competition for, for weirdness from our uh, neighbors down under. What, what did he want to do with it? He was just excited to have it he just wanted to show it off and, and oh, that's, I, I get that that's understandable yeah alex i feel like i learned something new about you and your love of platypuses so oh, alex were you in australia recently i've never been to australia uh i would love to go to australia uh to see platypuses among other uh animals but um you know a mammal with a bill and a poisonous back claw that also lays eggs come on how do you not how do you not uh how do you not like that well alex i await your pto requests for that trip with uh <laughs> excitement uh nikki how about you uh well this is also uh dealing with an arrest sort of um so we had some reporting on this last night but this happened in boston this week but a delta airlines pilot was mistakenly handcuffed and shoved into a shower and interrogated because the FBI and DOD, they were doing a training drill and went into the wrong hotel room. So instead of like the actor playing who was supposed to be their suspect, they actually like arrested like a real guy and interrogated him for several hours before realizing their mistake. Oh my goodness. That's wow. see, that's, that's, that's when Trump can say, Hey, maybe, maybe this is too much FBI, but uh, yeah, what a mess. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll sleep a little less soundly next time I'm in a hotel. <laughs> Igor, how about yours? So I, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but during his um, speech down in Mar-a-Lago, Trump uh, made this kind of brief reference to Jack Smith, the special counsel working on the, the January 6th investigation at uh, DOJ. And <laughs> yeah, he called him a lunatic, but he also suggested that somehow Jack Smith's name was not Jack Smith. And it's, you know, it's really weird. I don't understand where this thing comes from. Um, but now some of his supporters are also, you know, tweeting about Jack Smith and putting his name in quotes and if that's his real name or not. And apparently Trump has done this before um, uh, about, you know, he tweeted about Ben Smith, the, the former BuzzFeed editor now at Semaphore, saying, you know, if that is actually his real name. So I, I think this... <laughs> This is kind of a weird, I don't even know if it's a conspiracy, but maybe just Trump has so much experience with the legal system over his long decades of lawsuits that he's convinced that anybody with, with a generic Jack Smith name is, is actually a fake person. <laughs> I, I assume when he says stuff like that, that, there's already a conspiracy theory, but maybe I have it backwards. He is, um, he is starting it. 
Well, my favorite story of the week um, is about the LSU women's basketball team. Um, for those who don't know, I may be one of LSU women's basketball's biggest fans. Went to every game as an undergrad, home game as an undergrad. I traveled to see them up the East Coast. Most people probably saw on Sunday they won the national championship and it set off this um, real sort of back and forth about Angel Reese um, taunting Caitlin Clark, the player from Iowa, the first lady, inviting both teams to the school, to the White House, and then taking that back. And then Angel Reese saying that she would not be going to the White House because of this. Um, but really, what I love is the story The Athletic did um, asking about the future of women's basketball. Um, the game on Sunday got 9.9 million viewers, which was the the record for a women's final set uh, in 1992. Um, this is really just an explosion of attention on women's basketball. And this athletic piece asked the question, you know, is this a new day for women's basketball? And I would like to give a resounding, I hope so. Um, and that we see women's basketball and LSU's women's basketball team be part of uh, just a resurgence of our resurgence of fans watching the women's game and not just the men's game. Um, and so that is my story of the week. That is a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to my NBC News colleague, political reporter Alex Seitzwald, Nikki Schwab, senior political reporter for the DailyMail.com, and Igor Bobic, senior politics reporter at HuffPost. I'm Ginger Gibson, senior Washington editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. While Bill is in Rome, he sat down with the legendary NPR foreign correspondent, Sylvia Pajoli. That interview drops next Tuesday. And next Friday, Bill will host the roundtable from Rome. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.